Well, hey, get your Bibles out if you would. Turn to the book of Matthew. We're in a series called The Best Sermon Ever. It's the series, uh, The Sermon on the Mount. And if you do not have a Bible, but you'd like to have one, I want you to raise your hand, and our uh, host team would like to get you one right now. They will hand one to you. You can keep this as a gift from us to you. Um, So as you get your Bibles, or uh, if you have one already, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be reading uh, verses 17 through 20. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you are a new follower of Jesus Christ. You matter of fact, you're one of his disciples. You grew up around the region of the Sea of Galilee. For years you were a fisher, fisherman, fisherwoman. Your dad was a fisherman. Your grandfather was a fisherman. And all of a sudden one day this guy comes along and and, uh, you just feel this this thing inside of you. I've got to follow this guy. You drop your nets. And next thing you know, you're leaving your home, you're, you're, you're leaving your family, and, and you're following, you're walking around with Jesus. And uh, he's teaching you, along with your friends, guys you grew up with, some guys you've never met before. Um, but you're just, you're learning things you've never heard before. This guy, everything he says is just so compelling. And then one day, you're on the mount, on a, on a, with him on, on the side of a mountain, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, not too far from your home. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people standing with you. People that you know, people that you don't really know, but you, you know they're from another town around the Sea of Galilee. But there's also a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, the, the teachers of the law. And, and everybody's listening. They're, they're, they're waiting to hear what Jesus has to say because word has kind of gotten around about this guy. And people are waiting with great anticipation to hear Jesus' first recorded teaching, his first sermon. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching, as he begins to teach, he's teaching uh, what it means to be a follower, what it means to truly be a disciple, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And in his introduction, which we have called the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the character traits of what a fully devoted follower will look like. Speaking to this crowd in the third person, Jesus begins to speak. Now, before I read this, I want to tell you, we've actually put um, some videos of the Beatitudes online. Paul Richardson and I, about two weeks ago, recorded little five to eight minute uh, vignettes. And you can go to westridge.com slash Beatitudes and you can uh, get these videos. You can use them in your small groups or in just your uh, family, you know, Bible time or in your personal study time. So take advantage of that. But I want to read through the Beatitudes. We haven't done that yet. I want to use this kind of as a ramp to get into the rest of the message. Jesus says this in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now think about this for a moment. You're, again, you're, you're, you're listening to Jesus talk for the very first time publicly in, in kind of a sermon-type setting. And Jesus, in front of everybody, says, well, happy are those who are poor in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, and other things. Now, this is not the kind of language that the Jews were used to hearing from their rabbis and teachers. 
And there had to be a bit of tension in the crowd as Jesus began to teach. Jesus' followers had to be kind of looking out of the corner of their eye going, we've heard him say this before, but never in a crowd like this, never publicly, and certainly not in front of the, 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 the Pharisees or the scribes. And they had to be looking like this to see what, you know, the, what was going on in the, the faces of the Pharisees. And looking over and seeing the eyes get really big of the scribes, wondering what in the world is this guy talking about? And then Jesus subtly switches his language from third person to second person. And in verses 13 through 16, he says to the crowd, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, this is the kind of influence and testimony that describes a disciple, a fully devoted follower. He says, shake your salt, shine your light. Shake and shine, all right? I probably should have called my message last week, shake and shine, all right? And then Jesus says something revolutionary, something that is radical to these people, something that was earth-shattering, something that was very monumental. Fifteen verses into the sermon, Jesus now begins to talk in first person, and he begins to talk about himself. Look at verse 17 for a moment. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine for a moment, again, here you are, you're standing on this hillside, listening to Jesus teach, and he has just made some mind-blowing claims. Now, I want to break this down for you just for a moment, because this is a tough passage of, of Scripture to teach from, all right? How we celebrate Spring Forward Sunday is really, we teach the law here at Westridge, all right? So, I want to break it down, if I could, so that you can understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I have, I have actually have the authority to teach the Old Testament. This is something that only the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were actually allowed to do. And Jesus says, I have authority to do it. He says, I haven't come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill it. Now, that's a huge claim, okay? Because Jesus has now just put himself in the category of Savior, he says, I'm actually the one who decides who will be great and who will be the least of these in the kingdom of heaven. And if things couldn't get worse in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the religious teachers of the day, the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. <laughs> With that last statement, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the crowd, even, even his disciples must have been thinking, who in the world does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is to be speaking like this? Does this guy think he's above the Old Testament law? Does he, did he just call himself the fulfillment of Old Testament law? Does he think that he is beyond the authority of Scripture? Is he bringing a different teaching than what our forefathers and prophets have been teaching to us for century after century after century? I mean, well, for the rest of our time today, I want to break down what Jesus has said. And I'm going to do it by asking and answering some tough questions about what Jesus is saying here. And, and you've probably already gathered 
as I said before, this is one of the tougher places in Scripture to understand. But since Jesus thought it was important to teach and to say, I think it's important that we teach it here and hopefully understand what he means by talking about being the fulfillment of the law. So first of all, what about this whole issue of authority? What about it? Does, does, did Jesus now really have the authority to teach Scripture? Well, look what he says again in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus references the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entire Old Testament, the books all the way from Genesis to Malachi. The people of Israel had been commanded to follow every single word of the Old Testament that had been written. And that included the Ten Commandments, which, would, which were given to uh, Moses on the Mount Sinai, which is recorded in Exodus chapter 20. It included the first five uh, books of the Old Testament, which is called the Pentateuch. The law consisted of 613 different commands that were listed in the Old Testament. 613 that they had to follow perfectly. So the, and the law and the, and the writings of the prophet would have been understood to mean the entire Old Testament Bible. And Jesus states up front and sets the record straight with his listeners that not only did he have the authority to teach Scripture, but he also believed in the authority of Scripture. Again, huge claim. And he's trying to set everybody at ease to say, listen, not only, you, you heard me say, I have authority to teach it, whoa, but I actually believe all of it which actually set everybody at ease for just a moment. Now, before we go forward, since Jesus is addressing the law, then we probably need to talk about it for just a moment. We need to ask a very important question about the law. And here's the question. What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Again, one of the tougher teachings in the Bible, and some of you may be feeling right now like, man, I feel like I'm in Bible class here at Westridge Church, okay? Well, hopefully I want to give you something that you can understand that's tough, but hopefully when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll know what to do. Uh, with what Jesus is teaching here. There were several purposes for the law, all right? The law revealed the holiness of an eternal God to the nation of Israel. It set God apart in their minds as being someone who was holy. The law set the Israelites apart as distinct from every other nation. There was no other nation around them or anywhere in the world at that time that had a law like this. They were set apart by God himself with very distinct laws, The law didn't provide salvation for the Israels. It actually revealed their sinfulness. The law provided a way for the Israelites to receive temporary forgiveness. God set up a whole system of of offerings and sacrifices that were set up to provide forgiveness. Once a year, the the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he 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 would have a sacrifice that would cover the sins of the Israelites. It brought the people together in, in worship through, uh, to the Lord through feasts and festivals. They had all of these times of the years where, where they would come together. They had very significant meanings, different feasts, different festivals. It provided God's physical uh, direction for physical and spiritual health. God said if you, if you set aside these health laws, you're going to be healthy by avoiding these things right here. But ultimately, the law pointed the Israelites to their need for a Savior. Now think about this for a moment. God gave the Jewish people 613 laws. Some of them were civil laws. Some of them were moral laws. Some of them were ceremonial laws that dealt with the health. There was no room, and with these laws, there were no room for error. The law actually demanded perfection. The law served as a constant reminder to the Israelites that they fell short of God's standard of perfection and righteousness, that they needed a Savior, a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, to meet the demands and the requirements of the law. Now imagine 
living during this time and having the weight and the burden on your shoulders that, that no matter what you did, you could never, ever meet the requirements of the law. You, you always fell short. No matter what you did, there was no, never a way that you could, 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 could meet all of these rules. What you needed was a Savior. No matter how hard you tried, you always failed at, the key, at keeping the rules. Always. What you needed was a Savior. No matter the amount of sacrificial lambs or goats that were killed, that none of it would ever have the ability to once and for all pay for your sinfulness and your failure to keep all these rules. What you needed was a Savior. You see, the reason for the law was that God wanted a loving personal relationship with, with His people, but they just kept rebelling. And ultimately, this was a, a matter of the heart. God wanted the Jewish people to love Him with all of their hearts. He wanted them to love Him the same way He loved them, with commitment, with just sacrificial dedication. But their hearts, their, their hearts were constantly cold and callous towards Him. He wanted intimacy with the, with the people of Israel like a, like a wonderful father with his children, but their sinfulness just kept getting in the way. So He gave them 613 laws to remind them that they had a sin issue that just needed to be dealt with. He set the bar so high that there was absolutely no way they could reach it. They had a severe problem that needed to be solved. And what they needed more than anything else was a Savior. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of a child who was promised. Who was that? Jesus. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. This is where Jesus comes into the picture. Standing in front of this crowd, Jesus presents himself as the Savior that they had been waiting for, as the Savior that they needed, as the actual fulfillment of the law. Jesus says, I, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets. He says, no, I came to be the fulfillment of them. Now, did Jesus really do that? Did Jesus really fulfill the law? Now, here's what we need to understand. The law demanded two things. It demanded obedience and it, man, it demanded death. There had to be a sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law through his life in the sense that he lived out the demands of the law perfectly. He accomplished the law to perfection, every aspect of it. He lived perfect obedience to the law. No one had ever done that before, and no one's done it since. While every single one of us are sinners, Jesus faced every temptation we will ever face and yet never sin. He never compromised. He never hedged. So he could be the fulfillment of the law. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect who has been tempted as we are. Jesus went through every temptation that we're ever going to face. And the Bible says, yet he did it without sin. He then fulfilled the law by his death. He fulfilled the law by dying for our sins. Now again, the law demanded a blood sacrifice for anyone who did not live in obedience to it. Who, who did that include? Everybody. Everyone. It demanded death. So Jesus came, comes along and he provides a sacrifice that the law demanded. He shed his blood and died on behalf of every person who failed to obey the law, which includes every single person in this room. The fulfillment of the law is what Jesus came to do. And he would accomplish it through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. He would accomplish every single aspect of it. Look at how Jesus says this in verse 18. He says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, 
Not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Now, what does that mean? Well, I grew up with the good old King James Version. In the King James, the words for iota and dot were jot and tittle. Anybody grew up with the jot and tittle? You ever wonder, what in the world is a jot and tittle? Well, the jot is the literal translation of the smallest letter in the Old Testament Hebrew language. It's, It's called the yod. It's a letter that looks like an apostrophe. All right? The, t- the tittle is even smaller. It's, 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 if you look at Hebrews, Hebrew letters, if you, if you put a tail on a Hebrew letter, it will actually change the meaning of that word. That's a tittle. Jesus is saying, I'm the Savior you've been waiting for. When I'm through here, my life, my death, my resurrection will have fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. The moral laws, the ceremonial laws, the government laws, the Ten Commandments, the prophecies, not even the dot of the I or the cross of the T shall pass away until it's been fulfilled. Not even the jot or the tittle. Not even the iota or the dot. Now, at this point, (laughs) <laughs> there had to be some questions in the crowd. I mean, there's probably some people, I don't know if they raised their hand back then, but I mean, I probably would have and said, okay, wait a minute. Does that mean now that the law is irrelevant? We're talking thousands and thousands of years of doing, thing one, doing things one way. I mean, for thousands of years, the Jewish people have been under Mosaic law. It was a binding covenant made between God and Israel. And Jesus is now saying it's been fulfilled. Did this now mean that, that Jesus just did away with the law by fulfilling it? Did he, did he make it useless? Did he make it yesterday's news? Now, listen, you could go into a bunch of commentaries and see different people come up with different answers for this. This is, this is stuff that, that pastors and theologians and Bible teachers have been still, are still debating and, debating and arguing over. So I want to give you what I believe Jesus is saying here, all right? And just years of studying, going through seminary myself, this is what I've come to. As true followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer bound to the Mosaic laws or, his, or its requirements. It's already been fulfilled by Jesus. The, the law demanded punishment. Jesus died for our sins. God no longer holds punishment of sin over our heads. It was all put on Jesus on the cross. In Christ, we are unconditionally loved and accepted. Payment has been made. The sacrifice has been made once and all, once and for all. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus. When Jesus spoke the words from the cross, his last words, it is finished, he was declaring that the Mosaic law was now fulfilled. Nothing more needed to be done. Nothing needed to be added to it. When Jesus fulfilled the covenant he made with Moses, he ushered in a new covenant, a covenant of grace. In other words, it's called in Scripture the law of Christ. So now what do I do with this? What, what, how do I relate to the law? Well, the law was broken into three categories. And I want to just tell you what happened to each one of them. You got the civil law, the ceremonial law, you got the, mosaic, you got the moral laws. Today, Christians are not bound to civil laws of the Old Testament because these laws were given specifically to a very specific culture in a very specific time, the nation of Israel. These laws, they were laws that governed the Israelites in the Old Testament period. We're not bound to the ceremonial law. Since the church is not the nation of Israel, we're not required to observe all the feasts and the festivals found in the Old Testament. We're not required to observe the Passover, even though some of you may may do that. It's okay to do that. We're not, some may put the Sabbath in here. I actually kind of like the Sabbath, but we're not required to do it. We're not required to sacrifice. We're not even required to circumcise anymore, even though it's probably a good idea. Another time. Christ also fulfilled the requirements of the moral laws. 
These were the laws that spoke about justice and respect and and sexual conduct. It it included the, the Ten Commandments. Now, where do we find many of those same principles of character and conduct today? We find them in the New Testament. They have been moved over. They're part of the covenant of grace. What does Jesus say about these principles and commands? Well, he says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus puts a high value on the commands and teachings of Scripture. And he says, don't relax even the smallest commandment and don't teach others the same, lest you be called the least of these in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven twice in this verse. When we read the Beatitudes, you saw over and over again, Jesus referred to the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. We see this phrase throughout Scripture. Now, let me give you a very simple definition of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what the world looks like when Jesus gets his way. Now, I could give you a real technical definition of that, and you'd probably go, what what did that mean? The, the, The kingdom of heaven is what the world looks like when Jesus is ruling and reigning, when he gets his way. The kingdom of heaven is not just referring to a place in the future. It's speaking to the here and now. And here's what Jesus is saying. A person whose life reflects the kingdom of heaven is going to be living a life where Jesus is Lord of their life. They're going to be living under the authority of Scripture. He or she doesn't take advantage of the commands of Scripture, even though we're under a different covenant, even even the smallest of commands. They don't compromise them. They don't try to dismiss them or make them say something that they don't say to fit their own agenda because they know that they'd be missing out on the blessings in this life and the rewards in the next life. Now, this is important. Jesus is not preaching to this crowd that they, that they have to be obedient to the law to be saved as, as, or even to go to heaven as some of the Pharisees would have wanted him to do. He is telling this crowd that obedience to the law is the key to unlock the blessings and rewards that Jesus has in mind for us, not only in this life but in the next life. He is challenging them to start living for a different kingdom, a place where God is ruling and reigning in their lives, where ultimately Jesus is getting his way. He is, he is Lord of your life. He is reigning supreme in your life. Now, at this point in the sermon, I think most everybody's probably shaking their head going, yeah, that's great. Even the, even the, the Pharisees and the scribes may have been saying amen. I mean, there, there may have been a few may, amens from the older Baptists and even the Charismatics in the crowd here. All right? But Jesus is about to change all of that. Because verse 20 changes the whole thing. Look what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Now with that statement, Jesus just throws the Pharisees and the scribes right under the bus. He is about, he has just now drawn a huge line between him and them. He has just said to them, I'm about to separate myself from you when it comes to understanding the law and what this is all about. Now remember, the the, the scribes and Pharisees, they were not only the teachers of the law, but they were the law police. These guys were the list keepers, the rule checkers, the self-righteous, the the religious zealots of the day. And Jesus tells his listeners that the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes, they have been defective in their teaching and the way they practice the law. They had committed themselves to complying to every detail of the law of Moses as well as a bunch of other man-made traditions that had been created by Jewish teachers over the years. 
But their righteousness was all about external stuff. External experiences, external appearances. It was all about how they, how they looked, how they dressed, the, the length of their tassels on their robe, the color of their robe, the actual length of their robe. I mean, it all had to be just to a T. But Jesus places emphasis on internal character. Theirs was all about external exper- uh, appearances. Jesus says, no, 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 what I'm about is internal character. The Pharisees were all about impressing the crowd. Jesus lived to please his Father. The Pharisees were all about rules and regulations that please the flesh. Jesus was all about motivation of the heart. So Jesus is saying that if his followers and listeners were going to be part of his kingdom, not just in the here and now, but in the ever after, their heart had to be changed from the inside out, not from the outside in. This was about the heart, not about rules and regulations. But how in the world could people have a a righteousness that exceeded the the Pharisees and the scribes? I mean, they were like the big dog righteous people of the day. I mean, how could that be be possible? Standing in front of this crowd, Jesus makes a statement. It's all about me. How do you have a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees and the scribes? It's all about Jesus. From here on out, as they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be their Savior, as they recognized him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, they would be recipients of Christ's righteousness that was perfect in every way. The righteousness of Jesus would be credited to them when they made that decision. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We could actually be the very righteousness of God. And that righteousness would be received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and no longer by, not, not by works, not by rules, not by regulations. It's all by faith. A gift given to us by grace. Plus now, and this is, oh, this was a, cha- this was a game changer. Now they would be recipients of a righteousness that would be given to them, to them daily through the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, Paul says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. What does that mean? It means that through salvation, Jesus has our hearts. And not only that, he is empowering us by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live in obedience to God's word, not out of duty, not out of fear, not out out of even the desire for blessings over rewards, but now out of love. It's all about a loving relationship. Now, What Jesus is about to lay out next in this sermon is actually going to blow these people's minds. And it's going to be vital for them to know, and it's going to be vital for us to know, because Jesus does something epic in the verses that follow. He talks about anger. He talks about murder. He talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about remarriage. He talks about swearing. He talks about retaliation. He talks about loving your enemies. Those are the stuff we're going to be talking about. That's the juicy stuff we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. But as he talks about this, I want you to understand something. He doesn't lower the bar. By saying, now I fulfilled the law, he actually actually raises it. He raises it to a whole new level. As if the Old Testament wasn't hard enough, Jesus takes some of the Old Testament principles and he reinstates them and he raises the bar by making a statement before each issue. He says, well, you heard it taught this way. You heard the law teach it this way. But he says, but I say this. And with 
every one of these I say this is, he actually raises the bar on each issue, making it nearly impossible to follow. If the moral standards of the Old Testament were already impossible to keep, how in the world, these people had to be thinking, how in the world are we going to meet the new standards that Jesus is now teaching in this sermon? We still need a Savior. It's only through Jesus. The Old Old Testament law made the Jewish people cry out for, for years and years and centuries. We can't do this. It's impossible. We need a Savior. Jesus was the fulfillment. When you hear the standard of obedience that Jesus puts on things like anger and loving your enemy and even swearing, you're going you're gonna to sit there and go, no way. If I'm angry at someone, it's almost like murdering them. If I look at a woman wrongly, I've committed adultery in my heart. My goodness, we're all in trouble in here, right? Can't be done. And Jesus would say, absolutely right. What you need is a Savior. You still need a Savior. You couldn't fulfill the Old Testament law. You needed me to do it. And now the only way you can live in obedience to the commands right now is through me as well. I'm the fulfillment. Every day. Every day. I will teach you how to live righteously. Every single day. I will empower you through the power of my Holy Spirit to obey me through, the indwelling, through this indwelling Holy Spirit that's inside of you. I will give you the strength to do it. And it won't be about rules and regulations. It won't be about me putting a burden on you and to, to, to try to keep you in line. No, no, this is, this is stuff that I've given to you because I love you, because I want you to walk through this life free from guilt and burden and things that would harm you and damage you, things that would, things that would, would cause you to, to, to wreck your marriage, wreck your life, wreck your friendships. That, that's why I'm giving this to you. But, but I want you to know that all of it now is not going to be out of duty or you wanting something. This is going to be about love. What I want is your desire to, to walk after me, your desire to fulfill these things, to walk in obedience. It's, it's going to be because you love me. And I'm going to give you all the power to do it. I'm going to give you, I'm going to put a Holy Spirit inside of you that's going to indwell you, that's going to give you the power to do it. And when you get a little off course, he'll convict you to get yourself back. And, and, and we're going to come back and, and we're, going to, we're going to keep walking together out of this loving relationship I want to have with you. Now, some of you may be going, how do I, how do I begin this? How do I begin this loving relationship? Because I, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. You first confess that you need Jesus, that you're powerless without him. You need a Savior in your life. You are dead to sin without a Savior. And you repent of your sinfulness and your disobedience and your pride, and you, and you let Jesus forgive you and cleanse you And let him empower you by his spirit inside you to change you from the inside out, to give you new life, to bring you back into a fellowship with the the relationship that God the Father ultimately created you to have with him. That's that's how you start it. For some of you who, who already know Christ, and maybe you have walked away, sin has gotten into your life, disobedience, and you just, man, you're just, you're walking in your own power and you're realizing I'm failing. I'm walking around in guilt and and conviction all the time because I, 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 I can't do this. You need a Savior every day. And every day you go back and you, you remind yourself of what you have through Jesus. He see, God sees you as the very righteousness of Christ, but he also has through his, he's given you the righteous power to, through the Holy Spirit to live all this stuff out. 
Not perfectly. None will ever live perfectly. Still not going to happen. But you have forgiveness. You have grace. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Man, if, if you're in that first category I talked about, when you, you're looking at your life and you're going, I need a Savior. I need a Savior who will help me to go from spiritual death to life. Someone who will, who will empower me to get through this life and help just walk with me out of love and a relationship. And, and man, I need forgiveness of sin. And, and I need a, an assurance that, that when I die, I, I know for a fact that I'll go to heaven. I, I, need, I need a Savior. If you are that person, I want you to pray with me right now. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need a Savior. And you're the Savior I need. No one else will do. No one else has done for me what you have done by paying for sin the way you've done it, by making a sacrifice that couldn't be made outside of you, perfect sacrifice. What you did for me on the cross through your death, burial, and resurrection is what I need today to forgive me of my sins, to make things right between me and God the Father. Lord, to help me to walk with power in this life. Lord, right now I come before you. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. And I put all of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for this moment of grace. And I receive salvation into my life. And I ask you to be my Savior. Heads still bowed. We don't do this all the time, but I'm just curious. How many of you just now by raising your hand, say, I just prayed that right now. I just received Jesus Christ into my life. I've asked him to be my savior. Would you just slip your hand up? Amen, amen. Would you do me a favor? Get your Get Connected card out, fill it out, take it to the help center out in the atrium. We wanna help you to take your next step in walking with Christ. The rest of us, with heads still bowed, I know we had a moment earlier where we took communion. We confessed some sin. But maybe just through the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit's convicted you you're, you're a Christian. You, you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You remember that moment. But you're struggling. Man, sin has just crept into your life, taken over, and you're just, you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You need a Savior. You need, you need a Savior who not just forgives once, but forgives over and over again. You need, you need things to be made right between you and God. You're his child, but man, you're just, you're kind of a prodigal right now. Things are cold inside your heart. You need a Savior. Why don't you just take a moment, just confess those sins to the Lord and know without a shadow of a doubt because the sacrifice has already been made. The punishment's already been put on Jesus that he welcomes you back into his graces. He welcomes you back into his arms. Things can be made right between you and God as you just repent of your sins, as you come back to him at this moment, as you just confess those things to him, as you just tell Jesus, Jesus, I need you just as much today as I did the day I received you as my savior. What you did for me on the cross still impacts me today. It still provides forgiveness. It still provides this intimacy that I need. Thank you for that today. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for putting tough things in Scripture so that we can dig in, dig in and study so that we can live tomorrow in victory because we know that Jesus Christ empowers us to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that has been needed needed to be done to make that happen, to provide that for us, has been done through the life, 
of Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.